In episode 435 with Greg Martin and Jihi Jolly, they share the powerful Buddhist chant that unlocks your higher self, puts you in alignment with the universe, and creates miracles. Plus, so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I'm so excited about this episode because we dive deep into Buddhism. We haven't really spoken a lot about Buddhism on this show, but it's something that I have studied since I was in high school and I love a lot of the Buddhist principles. They're really beautiful and they're very easy to apply to your everyday life. And in this episode, we share some practical principles that you can implement into your life that will make a huge impact. And we also talk about a very powerful Buddhist chant that when chanted daily will create miracles in your life. And for those of you that have never heard of Greg Martin and Jihi Jolly, Greg is the co-author of the best-selling book, The Buddha in Your Mirror, Practical Buddhism and the Search for Self, which has been translated into five languages with over 500,000 copies in print. He is the retired former vice president of publishing and study for the SGI Buddhism organization. He is also a professor in the SGI Nichiren Buddhism tradition, lecturing and writing for much of his 50 years of practice. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in environmental science. He is married, a father of two, and a grandfather of two. And Jihi hosts the popular podcasts, Buddhability and Buddhist Solutions for Life's Problems, both of which unpack practical Buddhism insights through the stories of practitioners from her own community. She is also a multimedia journalist and graduate of the Columbia Journalism School. Her work focuses on media, culture, and religion. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Tricycle, and Pacific Standard, amongst others. She was born in India, raised in New York, and currently lives in New York with her husband. This is such an epic conversation, and I'm sure that you will be chanting by the end of it. So let's dive right in. Jihi and Greg, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you guys here. Before we dive in, can you each tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh, I had the same breakfast I've had for the past 21 years. Yogurt, walnuts, and fruit with a cup of coffee. (laughs) Amazing. I had eggs, sausage, and then gluten-free toast with onions and cucumbers and some Indian spices. Mm, Indian spices, delicious. They are my favorite. I love the Indian cuisine. It's possibly my favorite cuisine. It's the best. (laughs) And how was your breakfast? Mine was good. Well, it is morning where I am right now. And so I've just had breakfast and I had a whole bunch of fruit. I had some mango, banana, some blueberries because it is summer right now and the fruits are just so delicious. Mm. Sounds good. Now, Greg, you are the co-author of the incredible book, The Buddha in the Mirror. 
Now, my husband first discovered your book after watching a film about the Italian soccer player, Roberto, who turned Buddhist. And in the film, he starts using this chant. And Nick was so intrigued that he had to learn more. So he got your book, he devoured it, and he started doing the chant that you talk about in the book. Now, the Buddha in the Mirror shares this very powerful chant that works miracles for everyone and puts you in alignment with the universe. And you say in the book that this chant works for everything. Whether you believe it or not, it works. So can you share this powerful chant with us and share why is it so powerful and what are some of the benefits that you have witnessed when using this chant? Wow. Well, thank you. Uh, Again, great pleasure at being here. I'm happy your husband enjoyed it. He's talking about Roberto Baggio, the Italian soccer star who is a practicing Buddhist. The mantra is Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. It's very powerful and very profound, but simply understood, it's devotion of mind and body to the mystic law or the mystic truth or the truth of the universe that is both observable and mysterious, but manifests as the strict law of causality, cause and effect. And we devote ourselves through the sound we make, the vibration we make with our voice, uh, when we chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And that sound puts us in rhythm, in harmony with the universe, with ourselves, with other people, with our environment, within ourselves, with our own mind and body. And as a result of that uh, restored balance and harmony, we experience benefit. We experience improved circumstance, improved health, mental and physical, better relationships. And the best thing is, it really works. You can test it. When I started practicing 50 years ago, when I was a college kid at Rutgers University in New Jersey, I was a science major. I first thought the idea of saying words uh, like this to change your life was really foolish and unscientific. However, the young woman who was leading this meeting on the campus, she said, well, you're a scientist. I challenge you. Take the test. I said, what test? Well, test the practice. Well, how do I do that? Write down 10 things you're determined to change in your life. Start chanting, whether you believe it or not, a little bit every day for the next 100 days. And by the end of that time, you'll get convincing proof uh, that it works. If you don't, I'll quit practicing. But if it does, you have to promise to you know, take it a step further. I tried it. It worked. I'm still practicing. And I've been married to her for 48 years. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) Yes. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So you have been practicing Buddhism for 50 years. How did you come up? Like, how did this mantra come into your world? Well, basically, a stranger, fellow student on campus, had recently started his own practice and was so blown away by the fact that Here was a spiritual practice that promised and delivered on actual proof, actual evidence of change, that he just felt inspired that he had to tell people. He couldn't keep it to himself. And I think we bumped into each other on the steps of the student center. And he said, oh, by the way, we're having a meeting. What kind of meeting? I was a hippie at the time. I had hair, not quite as long as yours, but it was long and very beautiful. Not like now. (laughs) And I was an anti-Vietnam War activist and part of the counterculture of the 60s. And he said, it's a meeting about achieving world peace one person at a time by helping people become happy and satisfied within their own lives and then 
spreading the benefit to other people. So I went to the meeting, and as I said, thought initially it was really stupid and foolish sounding, but I tried the experiment. I took the test. I wrote down 10 things. I chanted, and not all of them happened to me, but enough began to happen. Enough change from the inside out began to happen that I just couldn't resist. And I did indeed uh, take the next step and became kind of an official member. And within a short time, I was actually helping others and encouraging others as best I could and leading meetings. And I've been doing it for 50 years. And part of it was writing the Buddha in your mirror. Beautiful. So can you say the mantra again for us slowly so we can get it in our head? Okay. The way I teach it is as follows. Why don't you follow with me? So it's Nam Myo Ho. Try that. Nam Nam Myo Myo Ho. Ho. Again. Nam Myo Myo Ho. Ho. One more time. Nam Myo Nam Myo Ho. I should. We should give you a card where it's it's written down. Anyway, and the next part is Ren Ge Kyo. Ren. Yeah. Kyo. So we put that together and it's Nam Myo Ho Ren Ge Kyo. Right. And then once you get over the initial hurdle, and by the way, this is um, kind of uh, a universal language. It's a Japanese form of Buddhism, but this phrase is based on a Chinese translation of an Indian sutra of Shakyamuni. So it's kind of universal. And so as we start practicing, we say, well, you know, nam yo ho renge kyo, nam yo ho renge kyo. That's it. Mm-hmm. You got it. And then you do it over and over. And it, I mean, just from the inside out, it feels so natural and good. Mm, yes. My husband did it and really committed to it and loved it. So how long do we have to do it for? And what time of the day? Is there a specific time that it's better to do it? Is it in the morning? And how long? Well, there's no, I mean, we're Buddhism is officially a religion, but we're so different from the other religions that we're really more of a philosophy or a way of life. So there's no strict rule. The more you do like exercise or anything, the more you invest, the more you get out of it. But it's good to to do it every day. Even twice a day would be great. There's no particular time, but it's good to set up a certain time of day when you're going to set aside some time and find a quiet place and chant. And you know, at the beginning, I did it for five minutes every morning for uh, 100 days. That was it. But that was enough to stimulate something deep within me and change began to occur. Now I do much more than that, of course. I, you know, I've actually dedicated my whole life to the practice and teaching of this Buddhism. Anyway, but gee, how much do you chant every day? <laughs> what a good question. First of all, I also just so happy to be here and I love listening to Greg explain everything. So this is really fun for me. I, it really depends on the day. I would say 20 to 30 minutes now feels like a, a good amount for me. If I'm really challenging something big, I will do more. If I'm pressed for time, you know, I might just do a couple of minutes and that's okay too. You know, I appreciate that there's really no rules. So it's whatever I can get in, but my sweet spot is 20 to 30 minutes if I can keep that up every day. And how did you discover Buddhism and how did you get into it? My family practices. So I was actually born to a family. I'm originally from India and um, my mom was introduced to Buddhism and she's a very spiritual person and she tried many different practices and 
this is the one that stuck. And so I grew up around chanting, honestly. It's always been part of my life. Since I was a very, very young kid, my like first ever chanting experience was I was learning how to ride a bike and I couldn't do it. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll say nam yo ho renge kyo and it'll work. And I got on the bike and <laughs> I don't know. It was like a rush of confidence maybe that I had been lacking. So I've always just enjoyed hearing it. I've enjoyed the community, but I would say I really decided to dedicate myself and build it into my kind of daily life around college, after college. So the last, let's say, 10 10 or so years. Mm, Beautiful. Now you guys practice a different type of Buddhism. What's that called? Well, the Buddhism we practice is called Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhism. It's based upon the realizations of a Japanese monk, 12th century, who had studied all the available Buddhist texts and recognized that the message of Buddha had become quite confused. It wasn't so, I mean, he taught a lot. There's so-called 80,000 teachings, so it's probably not surprising, but it wasn't clear. Really, what was Buddhism? In Japan alone, there were eight major and 12 minor schools of Buddhism, and they often argued and fought regularly. So he dedicated himself to kind of try to find the core. And he realized that in his criteria for deciding what was the prime or essential teaching of Buddhism was since the purpose of Buddhism, in his mind, was to help people become happy, which one embraced a greater range of people? And he found that the Lotus Sutra, which uh, Shakyamuni Buddha taught in the last years of his life, was indeed the most inclusive. It, it promised and was determined and dedicated to the enlightenment of all people. Specifically, its universal meshes included, you didn't have to be a saint to attain Buddhahood. You didn't have to purify yourself. You could be an ordinary person. Often the other sutras excluded such people. In particular, women were often excluded from being able to attain Buddhahood as they are. They'd have to be reborn as a man, that sort of thing. So he felt if the Buddha was in this teaching, was at his most universal and most inclusive, this must be the most powerful of practices. So based on the Lotus Sutra and its title, which is Myoho Rengekyo, he decided that um, if you devote yourself to this teaching of universal enlightenment, of universal equality in terms of potential, that you should attain Buddhahood. Anyone could. And then he did it himself found it, it worked. He started telling other people, worked for them too. And 700 years later, there's 18 million people in 192 countries, including your husband, chanting nam myoho ringyako without much knowledge, just enough, you know, whatever he found at the end of the book. And indeed, it does work. Mm, yeah. Orlando Bloom, Courtney Love, Herbie Hancock, yes. Tina Turner, they are all big fans of this particular type of Buddhism. So it's amazing. And I love the Buddhist philosophies and the principles. Can you share some of your favorites and how we can incorporate them into our life? Gee, why don't you go first? Yeah, this is such a, a great question because there's so many, but I would say probably the most important, definitely most important to me, probably the most important if I was sharing kind of with a friend on day one is the concept of human revolution, which is another way of saying inner transformation, but it it goes quite a bit deeper than that. So 
let's see. The simplest way to put it, I think, is also, I should say, by way of context, the kind of what Greg shared earlier is what the reason that we're chanting is to basically bring out this fundamental enlightenment that is already in all people. That was the message of the Lotus Sutra and all people, right? Regardless of uh, gender, of caste, of socioeconomic status, all the ways that we divide people in the world are irrelevant when it comes to the fact that everybody has this fundamental enlightenment or potential in their life. And so bringing it out on a daily basis and living your life based on that kind of greatest version of yourself, that's the point of the practice. That's why we're chanting. And that's why it's not a one-time chant thing because life happens and we all have our inner negativity as well and our different kind of challenges that might bring out, you know, difficulties in kind of facing them. And so human revolution basically refers to the practice of consistently bringing out your fundamental enlightenment, which we also call Buddha nature or Buddhability, which is the name of the podcast that I host. And it's just your own courage, your wisdom, your compassion based on which you take action, you know, it's not magic. It's not like you chant and then all of a sudden things are happening, but it's you chant and then you're able to manifest your own compassion to have the hard conversation or your own courage to take action towards your dream, you know, or your own wisdom to navigate a tricky situation, you know, with the most respect for the other person and the most respect for yourself. So that kind of lifelong process is human revolution or like really revealing your truest self, which is this enlightened self. And I just love it because honestly, once you start just chanting consistently and you see yourself showing up in situations behaving differently, it's just the most amazing thing. It's like you're constantly surprising yourself and you're also able to actually create the life that you want. There's never a situation in which you are, I guess, like fully stuck. You know, I, I never feel stuck anymore. There's, I, I don't feel blame or resentment or those things that tend to stop, stop us from moving forward in whatever way is necessary. So yeah, in a nutshell, I would say human revolution is the whole point of Buddhism. But yeah, Greg, feel free to add. I'm, I mean, there's so many other concepts, but I would say that's my favorite. Yes, that's one of mine too. One thing I like, it's really profound philosophy. As a scientist, I I was never really into the kind of this woo-woo, mystical, magical stuff. I need reason and logic, and it's got to make sense to me. And every time I've tested Buddhism in that arena, it has come through. It makes perfect sense. It's consistent with science, consistent with what you see in your daily life. It's just so... Um, Actually, you know, the founder of this form of Buddhism says Buddhism is reason. It doesn't go against what you know to be true. But the thing that really struck me, I'm a child of the 60s, country boy from upstate New York, raised Protestant, Methodist, Christian. What struck me the most is the equality. Of course, in the 60s, where there was the civil rights movement, the rise of the you know, feminist movement, the um, anti-war movement, and realizing you know, the people outside of the U.S., their lives matter too. And I was pretty active. I, I wasn't a leader of the student movement or anything like that. But I remember this one moment when uh, we took over the president's office on campus after the Kent State riots and four students were killed by, not riots, but demonstrations killed by National Guardsmen against the war in Vietnam. And we took over the president's office and trashed it up a little bit. And I walked into the office. All the leaders of the hippie movement were in there. And I felt kind of uh, small. But then I noticed within a couple of minutes, they started fighting about ordering pizza. And it just hit me. 
they've identified the problem, but they don't have the solution. They, I, heaven forbid, they should be in charge of the country. They can't even agree on ordering pizza. And it was around that time that I was introduced to this Buddhism. And the idea that all people are equal, male, female, black, white, whatever, gay, lesbian, straight, all people are fundamentally endowed with this Buddha nature. If I use my Christian upbringing, everybody has the breath of God within them. Everybody. No one is excluded. And therefore, if you really lived that way, if you really lived believing everyone is God's child, or in our case, everyone has this fundamental enlightened nature inside, you have to change your behavior and the world will be a different place. And I recognized when I heard the words that the only solution to the world's problems, you have to help people change themselves for the better one person at a time. I've learned later that this was the Buddha's essential teaching. He says, you have to remove the arrow of a discriminatory thinking from your own heart before you can help others. And this really is still, it just amazes me that when we live in a world that is so divided and so divisive and people are pitted against each other for profit and gain and power, time is right for the Buddhist teaching of real equality at the fundamental level of humanity itself. And not only that, not only are we all equal, but we're equal, not in a small way, we're equal in a grand way. We have this incredible power within us that we have forgotten. And Buddhist practice helps us to unlock, you know, what we call the treasure tower of life, bring forth the great treasures of the Buddha's life condition, which as Jihi mentioned, are essentially compassion, wisdom, and courage. If you could access compassion and wisdom and courage on demand, anytime you need it, your life would be different, completely different. And 50 years of practice, I'm still chanting, I'm still, I still have problems, I'm still a human being, still an ordinary guy, but I can bring to bear on my problems this power that I have. And therefore, I live with optimism, with security, uh, exactly as Jihi said, it's a different way of life. So it's this equality, because when I see these power manifest in others, I'm reminded I have that same possibility. So we often, amongst ourselves, we share our experiences. This is kind of the core of our practice. We meet in small groups. We talk about how, how's it working? How's the experiment going? Are you getting any proof of its power? How's it working for you? Uh, that never happened in church, to be honest with you. And I know it's just, it's still fresh and inspiring, even after 50 years. Wow, that's amazing. And what are some other benefits that you guys have both experienced from doing this chant? I can share a little. Honestly, it's so hard to even summarize because it's so much. I feel like I'm a different person than I would have been. So I'm just so grateful to my mom, to the community, all of it. But, you know, I think um, so by way of context, the reason I really became interested in practicing Buddhism consistently was because I felt like my personality and my dreams were in direct opposition to each other. So I was like a really, really shy child, just a very kind of fearful person. I think that was my base operating system. And I viewed most of life through that lens, especially dealing with people and just you worry what they're going to think of you or you talk to some people that you feel like you can relate to and not to others. And that was my nature. But I always wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to be a writer. And you cannot be a shy person. <laughs> you can't be afraid of people in that kind of line of work. 
So I didn't really tell anybody this explicitly, but that was kind of my personal test because I grew up, you know, around the community. I love the philosophy. It makes sense. It's not so difficult to understand once you hear it. But to be honest, I wasn't, I always wondered, like, is it me saying these words over and over again that's doing something? Or is it just me believing in this philosophy and trying to be my best self every day that's actually doing something? So Very long story short, it was in college that I kind of had the opportunity to test it out because I was studying abroad in China and it was the first time I'd actually been away from this Buddhist community. And so I could only chant. I was like alone. I didn't have my Buddhist friends around. I was on study abroad. I was trying to figure out what I'm doing. I couldn't speak Chinese, even though I was studying it. And we had to take a a language pledge in school, which meant I wasn't allowed to speak English. So I just quickly became very isolated. And I just, I just really was like, okay, so here are the conditions to test if chanting these words actually does something and I'm not going to tell anyone about it. And so I did it every day for about five months, really consistently. And my intention was, I don't know what needs to change, but I'm not leaving until I have some kind of proof, kind of like what Greg was saying. And I feel victorious. I have no idea what that's going to entail, but I just know that I'm not happy here right now. So after chanting, I think, I mean, so many things happened, but just fundamentally my daily life changed so dramatically. I mean, I I built relationships with people that I never thought I would, including transforming some very difficult ones. And I became very, very excited to pursue journalism, actually, because I happened to discover a book in a bookshop that changed my life in terms of journalism. And so when I came back, I felt just more confident than I had ever felt in my life. And I started to see my nature change. And all of the sort of fear that I previously felt just turned into curiosity about people. It turned into joy. It turned into confidence. And, you know, eventually years later, I I continued to pursue journalism. And I mean, now I can't even remember who that person was. So I think it's those inexplicable things that really change in your life that only you know, this is what I'm like on the inside. Like, this is the thing that I struggle with. Nobody else maybe even understands it. But when you see yourself change in that way, there's nothing like it. So that was really what did it for me. And of course, there have been, you know, more conspicuous things, you know, because in Buddhism, you can also chant for anything. We don't reject material desires. It's the things in life that, you know, inspire you or make you struggle are the things you should chant about. You're not trying to deny the fact that you have desires or you have problems. So, you know, everything from getting a job out of college, getting into grad school, dating, whether or not I should marry my husband, all of those things I chanted about, you know, and it came a space for me to be able to really process on a daily basis, A, how I'm feeling about things, really, really honestly, which I think is hard for people to do, to just start from a place of this is how I feel. This is who I am. And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with any of this. But now how do I access the most enlightened aspect of my fear or my anger or my confusion? And then what action do I take? Because I'm sure as you you know read in the book, and this is like my favorite line in the book is just that Buddhism is about action above all. And so, you know, very conspicuous things. I feel like I was really able to move my life forward and create a life that I'm very happy with because of that practice, if that makes sense. Mm, that's beautiful. Pretty amazing affirmation that it works. It's really powerful, really powerful. I have done a little bit of chanting in yoga classes and things like that over the years, over the past 11 years since I've been on my journey. I've done bits in yoga classes, but it wasn't until I actually read a book called Spirit Babies. 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book. And there are a couple of amazing chants in that book that they get you to do. This is when I was calling in my baby. And I did those chants for about two months leading up to getting pregnant. And then I got pregnant. And like, I don't know, it's just magic. I I think something really happens. Something special happens when you set that intention and when you sit down and you show up. And I want to know the process to do this. Do we sit? Do we set an intention or have a goal or have something that we want to work on and then just begin the chant? Is that how we do it? Well, it's pretty simple. You could basically do it anytime, anywhere, under any circumstance. However, there are better ways to do it. I mean, I know people who chant in the car on the way to work, but that's not really optimal. So as I said before, I think it's important to, first of all, it's important to do every day if you can and try to set up a good rhythm. Nine o'clock is going to be my chanting time or 6 a.m. or whatever it is and try to not be distracted, try to find a place to do so. I believe it's important that you actually write down, just like when, and if you don't write down your New Year's determination, I promise you it'll never happen. The act of making that determination physical, a physical reality in written form is important. So I, I urge people to write down 10 things that they want to change in their life, not just one, that they are determined to change in their life. Determination is kind of the driving force of everything. Unlike Western prayer, which all too often is very passive because the power that's going to produce result is out there, up there. And so Western prayer all too often is begging for help or petitioning some supreme being to intervene on your behalf, both of which are fundamental denial of your own power. Think about Jihi's experience. She had discovered that she actually has the power within herself to change her life. That simple realization itself is an enormous benefit. Think about if everybody knew they could change their life. They had that power and they had a practical method for doing so, how the world would be different. Oh my gosh, how many people, so many people are trying to change their circumstance thinking that changing their situation is going to change them. That if they get rid of the wife or get rid of the husband or get rid of this or change this or lose weight or always try to fix things with some expectation that, you know, like you see on advertisements on TV, that if I looked younger, I'll be happy like those people. Or if I chew this kind of gum, then I'm really going to be happy. All of that, that whole view of happiness itself is misguided. It's wrong. So as, you know, Jihee, she just started to try it. I hope it worked. But she discovered this power. And once you know that power of self, there's no turning back. You don't want to give that up. Now she knows, no matter what situation she's in, she has this reserve power within her. I can change myself. This is an enormous thing. So back to your question. So it's not magic. And ultimately, you're the one going to do these things. But what you're going to do is turn on your inner power. You're going to access the 90% that they say we don't use. You have this reservoir of power within you. We call the Buddha power, the Buddha nature, or Buddha ability. We just don't know it's there. Nobody told us. Nobody explained it. And as a matter of fact, in my religious tradition, we've been taught for the last 2,000 years that we're originally sinful, that we're disobedient to God, that we were kicked out of, we're bad people. How do you fix that? So when you believe that about yourself, it's hard to muster 
self-belief. It's easy to believe, disbelieve yourself and then think, I need help from the outside. So Buddhism begins just as an experiment, but pretty quickly. Exactly as Jihi mentioned, you begin to discover, oh my gosh, I have this reservoir of power within me. I had no idea it was there. Why didn't somebody tell me this? And Jihi now, she'll always know she has that. So now think about living your life knowing, I have this power within me. I can apply to any situation. What a different way to live. You don't need to steal from other people. You don't need to harm other people. You don't need to hate other people. I have the power. I don't know if you're young enough to remember the TV show, He-Man. I don't know if you guys grew up in that era. Anyway, I am the power. He has a sword in my I am the power. We are the power at the center of our universe. Tony, that's how you start. So simple. And I urge you to do the experiment. You have nothing to lose. It doesn't cost you a thing. We give it away for free. Write down 10 things you're determined to change in your life or, you know, whatever. Chant five minutes every day for 100 days. See what happens. And then let us know. I love it. I am going to do it. And I love that it all comes back to unlocking that innate power that we all have within us. There's nothing you need to fix or do outside of yourself. It all comes back to that power within yourself and really unlocking that and letting that out. That's uh, exactly right. So you, you asked earlier about experiences. So I've had many in 50 years. I'm still having experiences because, you know, life changes constantly. And uh, so new challenges come. We don't stop having problems. But in Buddhism, this form of Buddhism, we learn how to confront our problems and overcome them. We find the power and strength to deal with the reality of life. We don't, you know, all too often Buddhism is viewed as an escape from reality. Find your peaceful place inside. You end up in a monastery on the top of a mountain someplace. My favorite uh, illustration of this is the movie uh, Kung Fu Panda. If you haven't seen that movie, it's an excellent movie. It's really fun. But there's this monastery way at the top of this hill. Why are they up there? They're so far away from daily life. Well, it's based on a belief that you can't find this power in the midst of reality, but you can. So anyway, in my case, I came to discover after, I mean, lots of things happening, but after about 10 years of practice, it began to become clear that my fundamental challenge in life was going to be harmonious relationships. I have a hard time maintaining um, harmony in relationships, whether it's with my wife or my kids or at work or whatever relationships are a big challenge. And I didn't know why, because I'm basically a nice guy. Ask anybody, I'm a nice guy. But nonetheless, I was having real difficulties and it was a complete mystery why. But I continued to practice, which includes studying the Buddhist teachings, chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo to what we call the object of devotion or the mirror that, that helps us to see the truth about ourselves. It's called the Gohonzon. And I engaged in my activities because we believe happiness, can't, you can't be selfish and happy at the same time. That happiness must be for self and others. It's a team sport. So we urge people to do their best, to share their experiences, tell other people, help other people with mastering, finding their power. But still, things came to a head. I found out my boss was cheating me out of my raises at work. One way or another, that's a relationship at work, me and the boss. I was having issues even with my fellow Buddhists. I was having issues and, and my wife and I were at odds and uh, I was angry at the kids all the time. And so I started studying and reading and trying to understand what's the Buddha's view on this. And I came to understand the role of anger in my life and its source 
which was a tendency towards closed-mindedness and arrogance, which was really kind of covering up a deep lack of self-esteem. So this was a harsh pill. It's a harsh truism to realize. But I'd been practicing long enough to kind of trust what I was realizing through my practice, what this Buddhism was revealing about myself. And then I focused myself on fixing me. Now that I knew that, because I had to acknowledge, yeah, I tend to be arrogant, I tend to be angry, I have a hot temper, and anger poisons relationships. So I have to stop poisoning that. So I devoted myself to feeding, overcoming this anger nature and anger tendency immediately, within a week, frankly. I started focusing on this issue. All these realizations came, and I realized, you know, my boss was cheating me. I didn't know what to do about it. But out of nowhere, some headhunter called me, recruited me for a new job, and I, I found a new boss who was a mentor to me. My old boss is still an idiot, but he's not in my environment anymore. And I realized, wow, once you try to change yourself, your environment immediately responds. And then I resolved issues with my fellow Buddhists. And, but more importantly, by the end of the week, I was in love with my wife again. Seemed like she had changed before my very eyes. But in fact, I had changed. I had changed the way I respond to her. The same things weren't triggering the same reactions. Now, to be honest with you, this is a deep-seated problem. Actually, my tendency to be closed-minded and angry is the root of all of my benefit for 50 years, battling it, uh, wrestling with it, mastering it. It's become a good friend in a certain way, in the sense that when I feel that, actually, I can feel my ears burning now when I get angry, so I can stop myself. I'm mastering that nature. But there's an upside to anger when in the face of injustice, in the face of suffering, it drives me passionately to do something about it. So I was able to transform something that was destroying me and poisoning my life into incredible value creative force to drive me forward to try to make the world a better place. That human revolution has been profound. And as I said earlier, I'm still married to the same woman 48 years, and my kids still speak to me. My grandkids, who are 20 and 17, just came over yesterday to play some cards and have dinner. Uh, I'm on good relations with many people, but I can't be negligent. I have to be constantly wary. And if I get negligent or step back, the old nature comes back. So it, it keeps me on my toes. But I'm a really happy guy now because I discovered this truth about myself and I had the power and the wisdom and the practice to do something about it. My brother wasn't so lucky and he's no longer with us, but he didn't know what to do about the same nature and it ruined him, frankly. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening, including myself, wants deeper, more loving, harmonious relationships. And maybe it flows really effortlessly with some relationships and maybe there's some stickiness with some others. And I know for me, I would love more flow and more grace and more harmony in some relationships. Absolutely. Well, all of them, you can always have more. So that's really inspiring and definitely inspired me to try this chat for a hundred days. Now, I first studied Buddhism in high school, actually. It was part of our curriculum. And so that was when I was first exposed to Buddhism and I loved it. And when I began then on my inward journey 11 years ago, I picked up a couple of Buddhist books. I think the, one of the first ones I read was Buddhism for Beginners. I've read Buddhism for Mothers, which is a really beautiful book, and a few others. But I'm curious 
to hear, why do you feel like Buddhism is becoming really popular among young people? I'll let Jihi, who is much younger than I, start that conversation. It's a good question. It's interesting also, you know, so by way of context, Buddhability is a podcast that I host and also a publication newsletter, you know, all the all the things in media. And I interview a lot of people who I would say tend to be younger. It's a mix, of course, but, you know, many in their 20s, 30s, sometimes even in high school about why they started practicing Buddhism and what Buddhability looks like in their own life, which is amazing because, of course, the basic philosophy is the same, but everybody's individual character and individual karma and individual circumstances are different. So it's just, first of all, so much fun to hear actual real-life stories because it helps you understand Buddhism when you see it through the lives of other people and like just very universal struggles or dreams or goals that they're challenging. But I would say just based on being part of the community and my friends and also the people that I interview, it's practical. I mean, I'm not personally interested in relying on something outside of myself. I don't really trust anything outside of myself, if I'm going to be really honest, to create the world that I hope that we can create, you know, for future generations. And so I think that's a big draw, right? I, I mean, just in terms of trends in religion and all of that, Buddhism is appealing because we aren't praying to a higher power. And there's lots of data on that already. But in terms of the actual kind of community, and this is an interesting thing that I've heard is a lot of people I speak to tend to say, I already believe all of this. Like this, I feel like someone has finally just organized the things that I intuitively believed in, but I can actually practice something to believe in it more consistently and help it impact my life. So because it's so just honestly practical, I think that's a huge draw for people and why many people I think seem to be just open to the idea that, oh, you have the power to change your life. You should respect yourself deeply and you should really respect other people deeply. And that's essentially why the world looks the way it does right now, because we can't do either of those things as a society. So I think that tends to be the draw that I hear often. But an interesting secondary question is, why do people continue? Because it's really easy to, I mean, with so many practices, myself, I'm a very curious person. I love to learn and, and you can learn about many different kinds of practices and life philosophies and love them for a few weeks and then kind of forget about them later when you go back to your own routine or, or way of dealing with life. And that is what I find the most inspiring. I think it's because once you see what you're capable of, especially that like Greg kind of shared earlier, when we change on the inside, you see it in your environment. And that I think that resonates with a lot of people because otherwise you do feel stuck. Like, oh, wh why was I born into this family? Why is this the sort of pattern in every single relationship I've had? Why am I always getting angry in this situation? All of those kinds of things. And then to have a philosophy that not only tells you you have power, but gives you the tools. So wake up in the morning, consistently chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, Make sure that you set goals in your life regularly and challenge yourself, whether those goals are internal, you know, personal, like I, I want to have better relationships or I want to take better care of my health or I want to find the career that will make me happy, you know, those kinds of things. Or they're problems like I'm dealing with a life-threatening illness or I just lost somebody that was my most important person and I don't know how I'm going to go on. All of that, I think in every single situation, you have tools, you can chant, you can process the emotions. I think 
also we don't reject any aspect of ourselves, which I think that's been the biggest lesson for me in my own practice. You don't have to be better and then discard the negative parts of yourself. You can just be all of it and respect all of it because it's all part of being human. But then what action will you take afterwards? And sometimes I think we even delay the process of processing what you're going through because you're in denial about it and then you can't move forward. So for me, I think everyday chanting is a way to do that right away. Like we can feel a bit uncomfortable. Why did that conversation make me feel so sad? Why am I so nervous about this thing at work? I can acknowledge that every single morning and then I can begin to move past it and unlock that. Okay, well, I'm gonna challenge this anyway because this is my dream or I'm gonna really chant for the happiness of this person in my life because I really care about them and I don't know how else I can help them. So those are just some examples, but honestly, just hearing the stories of people in great detail when they break down how they were able to do that. Like for example, last week I interviewed somebody who her father basically lost all of his income in the recession when right after she graduated from high school and became very, very depressed. And it reached a point where he wasn't willing to go to a doctor, but he was very, very ill. And he was he just sort of felt he had lost all of his identity and confidence. What do you do in a situation like that? How does a daughter help her father through something like that? You can't really do or say anything. And she shared this incredible story of she was like, there's no right thing I can say. I can't give him the will to want to get healthy. So all I can do is really chant Nam Myoho Kyo for his happiness. And over time, she was able to, through her own chanting, develop so much conviction in his life, conviction he didn't have in his life and in her own, and just develop this relationship with him where he completely opened up about the things he was really struggling with, agreed to go to the doctor at the crucial moment and really extended his life. And before he passed away, was able to really share with her that he feels happy. He feels like he's resolved all of these things. I mean, you know, you can't make it up. It's like not a linear process, but it's just like, the condition of your own life that you can unlock through chanting, you can bring it out of other people as well by chanting for them. So I think for all these reasons, because it's so practical, because it works in every kind of situation, and because you're in control the whole time, there's no waiting. It's always like, okay, so today again, what am I going to do? What action can I take? Maybe I'll chant more. Maybe I need to study more. Maybe I need to just have more dialogue and challenge myself to do that. All of those reasons is what I've been seeing. It's incredibly inspiring. Mm, Absolutely. Greg, you mentioned before that you could write down 10 things that you want to change in your life. Do you pick then just one for that morning session or can you kind of have all of them? Do you hold that vision in your mind whilst you're chanting or, you know, do you have to pick one or can you have 10? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yes. It's not so complicated. Just write down your 10 determinations, fold them up near where you're doing your practice and chant with whatever's on your mind, but return to them, reaffirm them from time to time. And then what I have done at times is uh, when I accomplish one, I cross it off and put another one on there. So I always have 10 going, if you will. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a mental uh, gymnast to make this work. Ordinary people with everyday problems are worried about making dinner and feeding the kids can just sit and chant for a while and think about these things and then and maybe other things, it's okay. It's really that powerful. You mentioned earlier Herbie Hancock, who is, of course, a practitioner. He's actually wrote the introduction to the Buddha in your mirror. He's a friend of mine. We've talked many times. I remember one time talking to him about Buddhism and its relationship to music. And he made the observation that jazz is unique among the forms of music 
most other forms, somebody writes down a score and then musicians play the notes that are written. You start at the beginning, you get to the end. But jazz is open. It's open-ended. You create at the moment. So the qualities of a good jazz musician are different from those others. You have to be adaptable, flexible. You have to, of course, you have to have the basics down. You have to be creative in the moment, responsive. All of these uh, virtuous qualities you need to make jazz music. He said sometimes, actually he mentions this in the introduction, sometimes you even have to make music out of bad notes. And he said that's why Buddhism in his mind is the jazz of religions, because it isn't, it recognizes that life cannot be lived according to a plan. It's okay to make plans, but life doesn't cooperate with your plans. You must be adaptable and flexible, and you need to be able to bring forth these qualities to make music from whatever you have at the moment. When your child poops, you got to make something out of it, if you will. You got to make lemons out of lemonade. So we strive to develop these qualities, these human qualities that make us flexible and adaptable. And we can make some, you know, we call it value creation. We can make something out of anything. So then even when very bad things happen, loved ones pass away, you lose a job, you apply these things, you find a way and you find yourself making music even out of difficult things, turning what we say poison into medicine. That's another power that's pretty incredible that human beings have that nobody's telling them about, that they don't even know about, to be honest with you. So in a certain way, being a Buddhist is to be a jazz artist of living. And it's really invigorating. It's so creative and, and fun to live this way. So my husband, Herbie Hancock, is one of his biggest idols and inspirations. Oh, So he is an incredible, amazing. my husband's an incredible saxophonist and he plays all sorts of different instruments, but grew up as a little boy. He would hide under his covers with a cassette tape, listening to incredible jazz music and he was obsessed. Amazing. And I love that analogy that life is like jazz music. And, you know, my husband, that's how he plays. So he will listen to a piece of music and then freestyle over it. And he's incredible. And he creates the most beautiful art out of just listening to a few seconds of a song and then he can freestyle. And it's just such a beautiful metaphor for life. So I love that. I bet you he could make music out of a baby crying or a street noise or when you when you're that creative. So think about living life that way. You're not worried about what might happen or somebody may play a wrong note. Don't worry. I got this. I can make music out of anything. It's a pretty extraordinary thing. Yeah, I love that. By the way, can I share a Herbie Hancock episode I had one time? Absolutely. He and I, because we're fellow Buddhists, so we were talking about life and things. We went out to dinner at a local restaurant and uh, and of course, people know Herbie, then nobody knows me. So we're on our way out and somebody, people are saying, hey, Herbie this, Herbie that. And some guy stopped him to give him a CD and something like that. And then he noticed Herbie's so, such a warm-hearted guy. So he noticed that people were kind of pushing me aside, ignoring me. I was okay. But, and then he said, oh, by the way, I had told him I played trumpet in high school. Uh, I'm not a musician. I, I stopped after high school. But he remembered that. And he said, oh, by the way, this is my, uh, this is my trumpet man. Oh, immediately people turned to me. Oh, yeah, that's right. It totally changed the dynamic. I'll always praise him for that moment of uh, uh, saving me from, uh, for just that moment I was, you know, Herbie's band. 
in theory. Anyway. How fun, how fun. What is something on your list right now that you would like to call into your life or change? Could you each share one thing? Okay, I'll, I'll go first. Right now I'm working on, I'm working on being a good grandfather. And it's a challenge in the sense that you have to have the wisdom to know and the courage to not say to allow your children to raise their kids and enjoy the process. So, I mean, it's a joyful challenge, but uh, a lot of people don't do it well. A lot of parents, the famous mother-in-law, Nietzsche and Daishona once said, every bride becomes a mother-in-law. This is kind of the inevitable way of life, and it's hard not to be one of them. So I'm now working on being a really good, show actual proof as a grandfather, as a, I'm retired from full-time work, I want to be really good at these things and be a model for other people who are uh, trying to be grandparents and live retirement. Yeah, so that's uh, what I'm chanting about now. That's really beautiful. And having just recently had my first child, I had a conversation with my parents before she arrived. And I said to them, and I had to have it again when she came Earthside, but I said to them, all you have to do with her is play, is to have fun, is to be love. Leave everything else to me. Leave the parenting to me. Leave everything else to me. Your job is to simply play with her and to give her love. And when I actually said that to them, I could see a weight lifted off their shoulders because I'm sure a lot of people think, oh, I might have to say something or or maybe some people don't, but I could see that this weight had lifted off their shoulders. And I said it to my brother as well, who is an uncle to her, obviously. And I said, all you've got to do is just play with her and love her and have fun with her. And it's such a nice reminder. You know, we've got as first time parents for me, I want to do it how I want to do it. So you guys just play and they do that very well now. They're so good at playing with her and loving her. And that's all they got to do. Yes. I heard one time that someone said, being a grandparent is your reward for not murdering your children when they were teenagers. (laughs) And uh, it is a reward, but uh, you're going to find it's harder for them than it seems Mm. because they want so desperately to help. They made a lot of mistakes they don't want you to make. It'll be harder than you think. So I'm working on that. I'm working on having, because I care for them, I'm compassionate then based on my compassionate prayer from the happiness of my daughter, son, all of them, I'm developing the wisdom and then the courage to be a (laughs) non-interfering and supportive grandfather. So far, so good. How about you, Jihee? I love that so much. And I mean, your story resonates a lot with me, Melissa, because one of the big things now is we're planning for a family or, you know, that's sort of going to be the next chapters. But honestly, just there is a lot of fear around that. Obviously, excitement, knowing that we would like to start a family soon. But my husband works a lot and I really enjoy working and writing a lot. I have some really big writing projects on my plate right now. So I just started chanting, how can I build a foundation in my daily life now that will allow me to not feel anxiety because one of my life tendencies is definitely anxiety and I just don't want it in my life. And so it's been really wonderful. I've actually just been able to 
really focus on my health. That was not the plan. That is not what I started chanting about. But again, you know, when you chant, the wisdom emerges. And the first thing that happened was me realizing, okay, this is the time to build building blocks really for the daily life and how we nurture ourselves and care for ourselves for the rest of our lives, for our family. And then secondly, just time, mastering time. And there's this phrase we sometimes use in Buddhism where you can chant to really expand your life, like expand how much you can take on. Because if our potential is unlimited, then your capacity is too. But that's not the same thing as burning yourself out, right? By working all the time, especially if you're a person who loves to work and loves to create and loves to write, which, you know, I am, I'm sure, you know, you are, but we, we must all kind of deal with that in some way. But yeah, so I've really just been chanting, like, how do I build creative practices in my life at this time that I can really enjoy for the rest of my life and not feel any fear about how life might change, you know, down the road when we introduce children and our parents are getting older. And so, you know, the things that there's natural anxiety about, I find myself being able to really get excited and confident about instead. Mm, Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Just uh, add one little thing. The thing I really love about this entire conversation, which I hope is clear to your listeners, is Buddhism is applicable to every possible facet of daily life. Nothing is off the table. Bring yourself in as you are and just add nam myoho renge kyo and the practice of Buddhism to it. Measure the results. Continue as necessary. It's so simple, but so profound. As I said, there's 15 million people around the world doing it. And every one of them was told to write down 10 things, chant, measure the results. Let it prove itself to you. I love it. I love it. You be the judge. Let it prove itself. That's beautiful. Yes, exactly. Let's pretend now that you each have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Besides the Buddha in the mirror, that should definitely be in the curriculum. What is one other book you would choose? And it doesn't have to be on Buddhism. It could be on any topic. But just what is that first book that comes to your mind that you would love every high school student around the world to read? Wow. I can definitely go first on this one because I was just telling Greg this earlier. Yes. And it's funny. So it's called Discussions on Youth by Daisaku Ikeda, who's a Buddhist philosopher and, you know, we view as a mentor in our form of Buddhism. But it's actually, interestingly, discussions that he had with high school students over the years, and it's organized by chapter into every aspect of life, making friends, what kind of career should I have, my relationship with my parents, what is love? Why are we here on the planet? You know, what does peace actually mean? All of those things in this really amazing dialogue format. And it's funny because when I interview people, over half of the people that I've interviewed, when I ask them, do you have a favorite Buddhist concept or a teaching or something you hold on to? They quote this book. (laughs) And I read it when I was in high school and college. And I felt the same way because the message of the book is not only, of course, the basics of Buddhism, but how do you apply the Buddhist philosophy in every aspect of life? And the fundamental message is, even if right now that you don't have hope or you don't feel capable, you have the ability to do anything. And I believe in you. And so here's how you apply it in this situation. So it's just like a hug. I adore that book. So that's what I would say. It's an incredible book. I wish it was in print when I first started. I'd have made a lot fewer mistakes. I mean, it's so down to earth and practical and it just touches 
real issues with uh, bullying and all sorts of stuff, but from a nonviolent respect for all people perspective that is unique to Buddhism. Another Buddhist favorite of mine by the same author is called Unlocking the Mysteries of Birth and Death. And I love this book because I'm a scientist and um, I studied science. I'm not a scientist anymore, but it presents the science and philosophy of Buddhism in very clear terms. It talks Buddhist psychology, talks Buddhist view of life and, and its interactions with within self and with the environment. It's a really good read. Uh, the application of Buddhism to the sufferings of birth, aging, sickness, and death. I, it was a revelation when I read it, especially having spent my, my years in college studying science. It was so relevant, so just in rhythm with what I had been learning, but holistically, it's uh, very powerful. I wish uh, young people could read it. But actually, if I had to give a first one, I'd pick Discussions with Youth. Mm, beautiful. <laughs> it's an incredible book. In fact, I'd put it in senior centers. We'll link to that in the show notes as well as the Buddha in the mirror. I would love to hear how your day unfolds. How do you both set yourselves up for a successful day? What are your morning routines? I love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day. So what are your morning routines? First of all, a good part of my life, I thought I was a night person. And I had heard many people say, you got to win in the morning. But I wasn't very good at that. And uh, in fact, Buddhism talks about you know starting each day. You got to start the day right, exactly as your question indicates. But I often failed. Actually, I, for many years, I was one of those people doing my morning chanting in the car on the way to work, usually late. But um, anyway, 2001, as we entered the new millennium, I was chanting on New Year's Day and thinking about my New Year's resolutions. I already practicing 30 years at that time. And I thought, well, Greg, you know, you talk a lot about having the power to change anything. Why are you settling? Why don't you just become a morning person? You know, test it again. This is after 30 years. So I said, okay, I wrote, I will become, I'm determined to become a morning person because I want to win. So I'm chanting. And then out of nowhere comes this quote from Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin said, early to bed, early to rise makes one healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I said, yes, sign me up. I want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But I had never really heard the first part, which is early to bed. And so it dawned on me. This is within about, I don't know, 20 minutes of making this determination. I can't win in the morning if I don't win at night. So this was an incredible insight. And I like my sleep. I have to get my eight hours. So I tried going on six. I, I become a vegetable or very irritable and angry. So I, uh, I want to be up at six. So I got to be in bed at 10 o'clock. Okay, I'm going to win at night. So I made a determination to, be, to win at night. And sure enough, I just get in my jammies, get in bed at 10 o'clock, turn off the TV. I like to read at night. I read a chapter, put it down, and I can sleep. Within three months, I was popping awake at six before the alarm goes off, and now a morning person. So my morning now is without an alarm clock, I pop awake around 5.30 or 6. I go downstairs, I make my yogurt, walnuts, and fruit, I brew a cup of coffee, I uh, watch half an hour of news, then I turn off the TV, I go upstairs, I sit in front of my altar where I have this Gohonzani shrine, I do my morning uh, Buddhist practice uh, for about a half an hour or 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, but for sure a half an hour. Then I um, 
take a morning walk every day for a walk about a mile and a half, vigorous power walk, good for the body. And then I shower and then I go to my desk and I start work. I'm retired. However, I still have things I want to do. Uh, I'm still writing. I'm still doing other things. And in fact, I'm kind of doing some part-time work from before. So that's how I start my day. I get my, uh, I need the coffee and food to get my body started. I start with my spiritual centering. I get my uh, exercise in. I, I get myself prettied up as best I can with what I have to work with, and I'm ready to go. That's my morning routine. Jihee? That's amazing. I uh, really believe in iterating. So I really try to reflect every couple of weeks and update what's working, what's not working. But currently what that looks like is uh, similarly, I wake up and I usually will go for a walk at the gym. These days it's very cold in New York. So <laughs> it's just on, on the treadmill to wake myself up and I will listen to a book or some kind of long form for a little while. And then I come back to my apartment and I will chant first thing. Usually I'll make coffee at the same time. I mean, I'll make coffee and I'll have coffee while chanting. And then after I finish chanting, I'm a huge journaler. I believe in morning pages and all of the writing practices. So I try to, after I chant, write down, you know, anything that came up and then rephrase it as a determination so I can kind of keep myself accountable because all kinds of things come up while chanting. And then I also study. So like we have, you know, Buddhist magazines that we subscribe to, or I might be reading a book. And I try to actually write down one quote every morning that I'm like, this is what I want to apply today. Because otherwise it's like great philosophy, that sounds good, but you're not actually applying it. And I'm such a words person that I try to write it down by hand. And yeah, and then after that, I make breakfast and I can't work without breakfast. So I agree, you have to eat in the morning. I was not always a breakfast person, but it's my favorite meal. And then I, yeah, just, I always kind of start with a to-do list of what I feel I will feel good about doing that day and make sure that it's not too long because my tendency is to put everything on it. And then I, I start work. Beautiful. Melissa, I bet your child has changed your morning routine. What's yours like? <laughs> Definitely. So there was a pre-baby morning routine and now there is post-baby. So the first three months, there was no morning routine. Well, my morning routine was holding her in my arms and loving on her and kissing her and feeding her and giving her as much love and time and presence as I possibly can. So that was my morning routine. Now she is in a flow, which is so amazing. So she sleeps seven till seven. So depending on what time I wake up, like for me, I could wake up anywhere between 4.30 till six, anywhere in that time frame. Like this morning I was up at 4.45. So it just depends. And so I get up and the first thing I do is my meditation. So I do a 20 minute meditation and I just do that I will, you know, go to the bathroom and wash my face and do my tongue scraping, which is an Ayurvedic detox technique and have a big glass of water. And then I get back into bed and just sit up in bed and do a 20 minute mantra based meditation. And then I will read inspiring spiritual passage from a book. I might read something else from, from the book that I'm currently reading. I'll do some journaling. Maybe I'll write down what I'm grateful for. I might do a little bit of breath work, just some alternate nostril breathing or something like that. And then depending what the time is, I may check in with what's going on for the day or have some time with my husband or do some yoga, just depending what the time is. And then I wake my baby girl at seven o'clock. I go in and get her 
And then from 7 till 9.15, which is when she has her first sleep, I am in full mama mode. I am just dedicated to (laughs) feeding her and being present with her. This morning, we had a dance around the kitchen and it was really beautiful. So yeah, I love it. And I try not to be on my phone in that time. Like I put my phone away and it's on silent or on airplane mode. And I just want to be fully present with her. I don't want her to see me on my phone. So I'm just in mum mode at that time. Beautiful. Beautiful. Sounds like you got it under control. Yeah, she's beautiful. I'm, I feel so grateful and I had no idea I would love motherhood as much as I love it. Uh, yep, exactly. There's no way to prepare for it, really, but your life knows. Yes, absolutely. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, I've got three little rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Greg, you can answer first. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? You can take a moment, think about things you can appreciate. There's great power in gratitude and appreciation. And in fact, when you can express, feel and express gratitude and appreciation, it creates self-worth and self-esteem and spiritual strength. In other words, by practicing appreciation and gratitude, you strengthen your spiritual self. Why? Because when you say, thank you for that gift, you must acknowledge, I must have been worthy of receiving it. That's one thing you can do. Beautiful. Jihee, what about you? I would say movement. Maybe ask yourself how much movement there is in your life, whether that's really strenuous exercise or something very gentle. It's so easy to forget in the world that we live in to physically move every day. And it just makes such a world of difference. Absolutely. Okay, the next one. What is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Oh, interesting. I was talking to somebody about this uh, the other day. I would say seek spiritual wealth, not physical or economic wealth. The wealthiest person in the world is the person who's uh, self-secure, self-aware, self-confident. I would move away from external wealth to seeking spiritual wealth. I love that. Jihi? I would say, and I have to say this comes from Buddhism, of course, is work for the happiness of other people because actually wealth in Buddhism we refer to as fortune. And fortune is basically the protection that you need in your life. Like having what you need when you need it is, is true fortune. And that really comes from living a life dedicated to the happiness of other people, whether that's your family or your community, you know, in addition to yourself, of course, but because a person who's, you know, on that path then needs resources to continue on that path. And I think the universe responds right away. Absolutely. And what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? Oh, the Beatles said it best. I can't remember the words, but it's not how much love you take, it's how much love you make. And I was also thinking when Jihee was speaking about the Stones song that says, go to Jihee, come back to me. I forgot the uh, song. I'm sorry. Jihee, what's one thing we can do for more love? I mean, the first thing that really comes to mind is to give more love, you know, to others. But I think to ourselves, it's something very easy to forget. And so one kind of little trick that I do both for myself and other people is when I'm walking down the street, I try to envision every person I walk by or ask myself if they were seven years old, how would I feel towards them? And immediately I feel love. Doesn't matter what they look like now. And so I try to do that with myself as well, especially when I'm chanting. I try to check in. Little Jihee, how's she doing? (laughs) You know, 
So I think viewing everyone as a child, including yourself, is just the easiest way to access love. Mm, That's really beautiful. I remembered. So uh, the Rolling Stones, I heard a a rumor when I was first practicing that uh, Mick Jagger chanted, but I don't know if it's true. But one of his songs says, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, you just might find you'll get what you need. Mm. Exactly as Jihi said, my experience with Buddhism is it does not work to provide you with everything you want, because that could be self-destructive. But it does absolutely guarantee a life in which you will get what you need. And that's a good thing. Mm, Absolutely. That's beautiful. This has been so beautiful. I'm so grateful for all of your wisdom that you've shared. Is there anything else that you want to share with us? Jihi? I mean, this has been wonderful. I'm so inspired. So thank you so much for having us and for these questions and for your work. I guess I would just say, I mean, I guess promote the podcast. You know, it's wonderful. It's free and bootability. It's not just a podcast. It's also a weekly newsletter. It's a publication. We do articles every week and cover everything from the Buddhist perspective on self-love to, you know, You'll, of course, enjoy this, how to stop comparing yourself to other people, <laughs> you know, all, all the things that people struggle with. So it's at bootability.org. You can sign up for the newsletter, you know, all podcast apps. And I think just listening to other people's stories is the most wonderful way because that's the best way to learn. So that's all I would add. The philosophy is wonderful, but I think it's people that we learn from. So that's the resource that we've been trying to create. Yes, I would say the philosophy is wonderful, but it's really not that unique, to be honest with you. There's a lot of people thinking these things. What's so special about this is the practice. Nietzsche and Daishonen found a practical, simple, accessible, available to, think about it, to peasants and paupers in feudalistic Japan were able to chant nam myoho kyo They couldn't read, they couldn't write, and they were able to discover the Buddha in your mirror. Much to their surprise, When they looked in the mirror, they didn't see a fat, bald guy. No, they saw that they too, much to their surprise and much contrary to what they've been hearing from the powers that be, that they too had these virtues within them already there. They could be compassionate and they could be wise, that they could be courageous, and that when they applied those access and applied those things to their life, their life began to change. And their experience of the reality of life became more wholesome and positive and life-affirming. So it really is true that when you look in the mirror, and increasingly we become aware of it, the person we see looking back is in fact, much to our surprise sometimes, a Buddha in the making, a Buddha in the process of like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon of the metamorphosis from ordinary human being into the Buddha that we were all born to be. Mm, Absolutely. We just need to unlock it, unleash it, and let it out. Exactly. You got it. Perfect. This has been so amazing. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and for all the work that you both do in the world. You are helping, serving, and inspiring so many people all around the world. So I want to know what I and the listeners can do to serve you. How can we give back to you today? Oh, boy. Well, I I would hope people would be inspired to perhaps investigate this Buddhist practice further. It would really make me feel good if even one person were to make a positive change in their life and then pass it forward. Don't keep it to yourself. Share that with other people. Like ripples in a pond, any change, positive change in a single individual makes me happy is the purpose of my life. And if we can pass it forward to others, that would make me really, really happy. 
Yeah, I would say same. Nothing for us. I would just be so happy. There's so many people that just don't have the tools or resources to navigate life in a way that makes them feel truly happy and empowered. So yeah, I would I would say if you have the practice and you enjoy it, then pass it forward. And if you're just kind of curious, then I hope that, you know, it takes courage to really be willing to do something that makes you look inward so deeply. But I would be so happy, you know, if anybody just tried chanting, honestly, you know, even a few minutes beautiful. Well, you guys have both inspired me to do the chant and I want to encourage everyone listening to do it and to check out Buddhability and check out the Buddha in the mirror and implement some of these practices and principles into your life and take the test, like Greg says, just take that test. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your wisdom. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you both and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you as well. Thank you so much. I don't know about you, but I am so inspired to add this chant to my morning routine. I'm going to do it for 100 days. I'm going to write down my 10 things. I'm going to do it every morning and see what happens. I will report back and let you know. And I hope you will join me on this little experiment. And if you got a lot out of this episode, if you feel inspired, if you feel ready to read some Buddhist texts and try this chant, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed like magic so you never have to go searching for a new episode. And come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this episode. I absolutely love hearing from you. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. 